0: Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nouri and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called BIA that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, Stay tuned, because a little bit later on the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Karen Young, to our show today. Karen is the founder and CEO of We The People, a body care brand designed to make you feel great in your own skin. Karen has always been a problem solver, but one problem plagued her for years, which was debilitating razor burn. In 2014, while working as an executive for Estee Lauder, Karen suffered a particularly bad case and decided enough was enough. With $1,500 in her savings, Karen launched We The People from her apartment in Brooklyn and turned the shaving industry on its head by developing the world's first safety razor designed especially for women. Karen is passionate about changing the narrative of how we perceive beauty and shifting away from that unattainable, flawless and perfection that is portrayed in so many of our beauty magazines. The company is now the fastest growing black owned beauty brand in the U.S. and has been featured in many publications like Vogue, Glamour and O Magazine. Most recently, after self-funding the company for many years, which we'll talk all about, Karen closed an oversubscribed round and raised $3 million for the brand, allowing her to continue to push her mission of empowerment and inclusivity, something she didn't always see in the beauty industry growing up. In this week's episode, we talked to Karen about her very whiny journey in entrepreneurship. And some of the highlights include the biggest lesson she learned with her first business before We The People and why she decided to close it down, what her upbringing and immigrant family taught her about resilience and perseverance, which was very necessary in many of her difficult moments, which we'll talk about, the importance of therapy and how it's helped her in the darkest of times, and a very detailed step-by-step approach to how she ended up launching We The People as a side hustle and how it turned into a sustainable and high growth business and so much more.
1: Welcome to the show, Karen. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I am super excited. I know we were chatting a little bit before the interview, just how raw and authentic you are. And I know I say this a lot on my podcast, but I really admire any entrepreneur who's really to share the real details of what it takes to build any business. So I really admire what you've done in your multiple businesses, and I can't wait to jump into it. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you. So I actually want to start with a higher level question. And I know the word perseverance has a lot of weight in your life. Can you talk more about this and why it has more meaning to you?
1: Yeah, it's funny you would bring that up. I was literally thinking about it yesterday. I was kind of laughing to myself. And I was like, I think my grandmother taught me that word when I was like, seven or something like that, or maybe a little bit younger. And I think that given her life, I was trying to think like why she would have chosen to teach that word to me. It's a big word. I have an 18 month old and, you know, words are coming online for him and, you know, they're like big words and smaller words. And it's, it's like a fun stage, but I'm like, that was a big word and not just a big word. It had big meaning. So she had to have given it to me at a time when she knew that I could hold it and like come sort of come back to it. It was almost like a reserve that she gave me, right? And I thought to myself, well, maybe she kind of knew what was coming ahead for me in a way. And I think maybe from that generation, perhaps it was like the weight of womanhood that she knows, you know, and sort of knew really well, and she was like You're going to need this to kind of get you through life. I don't think she was psychic or knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur or anything like that, but she really served me with a word that really acts as a foundation for me and something that I was able to come back to through many stages of my life, personal, professional, emotional. And so it was a real gift. I think it's honestly gotten me through pretty much everything I've seen.
0: That is so fascinating. And I don't have any kids yet, but it, it's something I think about a lot. It's like, how do you instill these kind of values similar to what your grandmother has instilled in you? And I'm curious, it seems like she really inspired you to drink big and really do anything that you want. And mm-hmm. how do you think she really taught you the meaning of perseverance? Because like you said, the word has a lot of weight and you might not know what that means as a kid, but any examples of what she did kind of pushing you to be outside your boundaries as a child?
1: Yeah, you know, really always to sort of dream Big and like never laughed at anything that I was doing. You know what I mean? I think like very early on, as we sort of come into our own, it's such a fragile experience, right? And it's really, really easy for someone to say something that I know so many people who were like, you know, I wanted to be there, so I wanted to be that. But I remember someone laughed at me when I did this, or like someone said something that stuck with me and never got over it. And there's like that real that stretch from one. One to seven, I think like definitely closer to seven, those really formative years where like we actually start to understand Mm. the concepts and the weight of words and things that we're told about what we can and can't be. So she just never sort of locked me in, never put a wet cloth on anything that I was dreaming about. It was whatever I wanted to do, I could do. And I think that was just in general for my family. So, you know, I, I think being immigrants, there was a lot that went into that. It was very purposeful. So we they were very, very purposeful about access to education, which is, you know, a lot of reason why people would be immigrants in the first place. You are looking for better resources, better opportunities, better education. My family was sort of always in that search and education was a huge one, just Being open to people sort of having big goals and dreams for themselves was was just something that I always experienced, and she was very supportive. And then she just had like straight up hustle herself, right? Because she was, you know, that was the decade where you had like eight kids or something. I forget how many at this point, obviously they experienced loss and all of that, but she lost her husband relatively young and she had to figure out how to care for my mother and my aunts and uncles. And so she actually started her own business as a, as a caterer there was something that she knew about that perseverance very deeply, very personally, and 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 about that hustle.
0: Yeah, I mean, she seems like an incredible, strong person that you had in your life and what an amazing role model. And yeah, it is interesting because I think so much of what you think is possible, a lot of it can come from your childhood. I mean, even for me, I would start all these businesses and my dad and my mom took me very seriously and my extended family, they would, I literally thought I had one of the most the biggest business when I was a kid that I joke, but it's really the confidence. And I always look back of why do I have a better risk tolerance than someone else? It's like, because I truly believe at a younger age, they took me seriously, very similar to you and what was possible. So I love kind of unpacking that a little bit for everyone. And, you know, so I know a little bit about your journey. You were born in Brooklyn, but you moved to the Caribbean to be with your grandmother and your Mm -hmm. family. So tell me more about when you came back to the States and really how you think being between both cultures has really influenced also the women that you are today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I came back to the States when I was about seven years old. It's a cultural part of like being Caribbean and, and South American. My family is from Guyana uh, in South America, but we get like looped into the Caribbean, which is not a problem by by any stretch. I love, I, I love all of the associations. And typically it's done that way. The child, you'll be born in the U.S. because Benefits, right? Of being a United States citizen. That's what everybody's working so hard for. And then you go back to be raised by the grandparent and the family because one... A sense of culture that is just, it's so important, you know, but Caribbeans are, are like super connected to their roots and very strong sense of culture and the love for their culture. And so we would go back and be raised by family members. And that also allowed our parents to get a more solid footing in the United States because it's, we know, how hard it is. We know childcare is expensive, time consuming, you're exhausted. And quite often you're also supporting the family back home as well as the child. And so just as much time as you can get to work and kind of get a better solid footing until the child is ready to come back and like really get like that sense of education and start that journey. So that's kind of traditional to our culture. And so I went from when I was two months old, came back when I was seven years old, just went right into school. And what was fantastic for me was that I really sat in this interesting space where I considered myself Caribbean. But I was an American by birth and I lived in an immigrant neighborhood, Flatbush, Brooklyn. And so I was surrounded by people who opened stores and brought certain types of food or a sense of culture or experience or all of that into the neighborhood with these like incredibly hardworking people who would go out and basically hustle and then come back home to this place that felt safe to this place that felt familiar. And so I was constantly in flux. As someone was saying the other day, this chameleon like experience. And and I was just like, I totally, totally understood that. And that's something that like I just maintained throughout my life. But I felt like I was constantly observing culture, mm. you know? And that as you sort of go through, you kind of determine what cloak you want to wear at what time. And so I was an observer of immigrant culture and I was an observer of Caribbean culture and I was an observer of how women experience those cultures because I was surrounded by, by women. I was raised by a single mom and then I kind of moved through life and everything that I saw as possible for myself started with what that culture told me was okay to do and told me where it was okay to stretch. And so, you know, I saw my my sister sort of really throw it all to the wind and use her absolute brilliance to go towards architecture. You know, I saw my mom quilting and like doing things with her hands and like really just enjoying that. And I was just like, okay. And so like, I just, I took all of the elements and that, that sort of fed me. And then I carried that as I moved through the world. And I think I just was a consistent observer. And because of how I grew up, I knew how to fluctuate between cultures. And then there are also things that I had to figure out how to get rid of too. The patriarchal sort of experience where, you know, in Caribbean culture, men are really catered to and often have the final say and so on. And, oh, I got into some serious tussles with my dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had really incredibly supportive women around me who believed that I could do anything. And so, yeah, those were all the things that I, that I carried.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting just really thinking about all these different experiences that you had at such a young age really allowed you to be more of an observer, which has only benefited you in life because of these different, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're always observing and thinking about how can I make this better and looking at opportunities. So I can't wait to dig in more into your story because I think there's so many of your superpowers just came from these experiences that you just went through. So I love to hear that. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I know you mentioned, you know, any immigrant family, including myself, like education is so, so key. So I know you studied psychology, but then Mm -hmm. your life kind of took you in a different way and you landed in the world of fashion right afterwards. And I remember I told my dad, I want to go into fashion. He's like, absolutely not. You're not going to make any money. So (laughs) tell me more about kind of your transition and how you landed into fashion after
1: college. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I heard similar. So it, 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 trust me, it did not land too easily. And it wasn't the easiest choice. But you know, it felt like if I was going to take a risk, that was when you you take the risk, right? So I graduated with a undergrad in psychology from Fordham University, and really sort of was looking at the road. And, and I think I just always had an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial mindset. And I was looking at psychology and I was like, gosh, you know, I've spent the last four years studying these very old models for how people think and process and experience. One of the things I didn't hear, like there are some things that are like, okay, yep, that's standard. That probably goes across everyone, but like there were cultural things that I didn't hear. There were things that like I I felt like I wanted to be able to understand how to take back to my communities and the way people think in modern life and the experiences that they had to deal with in order to help people process and live their best lives. And so it kind of just didn't feel like a modernized experience. And then when I thought about ways that I could do that. I think I was just well ahead of my time. You know, there was no like online therapy. There was no, like, there were no apps or anything like that. And so I just, I didn't feel the calling for it. And in addition, it was going to be insanely expensive. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be out of school till I'm 40. And I just really want to go ahead and live my life. So I saw posting for an internship. When I was in school, it was in working for the showroom that housed uh, Gianfranco Ferre and Roberto Cavalli and like a bunch of really incredible, like high end Italian designers and decided to go for it. And I just went and I, I had such a good time. When I graduated. You know, it was actually a tough time to get a job. And there were so many people that I knew who graduated a year or two ahead of me that were doing things that they were not making them happy. And I was just like, No, like you have just gone through the ringer. If there's one thing that I, I felt I deserved was to chase a bit of happiness. And I ended up getting two offers when I graduated. One was as a recruiter, actually. And yeah, and it had like a base salary of 80K or something, which was unheard of at the time. And I was like, wow, I'm going to trek to Wall Street and like just kind of be in this sort of crazy experience And I don't think this is something that I want to do, but like I didn't know anyone who was making that kind of money then. And then I had had the experience of working with this showroom and these designers and I just loved it. I love the energy. I love the clothing. I love the storytelling experience. Um, I was an introvert and it pushed me and sort of pushed me above and beyond in ways that like, I didn't think that I could at the time. It really brought me out of my shell. And I said, Oof, I'm going to, all right, this is it. And I got offered a job at Dolce Gabbana as a result of this internship. You know, they said they needed someone as an account executive, like Junior, the woman that I was interning. Said that I said, I think you would be amazing at this. It was like, Half the, I mean, yeah, like, you don't get paid it was, much. It was just insane. Like I mean, the clothes—like you actually had to be grateful for the clothes because you couldn't afford to actually buy clothes. I was like sauntering up Fifth Avenue in like eight hundred dollar heels, a thousand dollar skirt, and then I would like pair it with a $9.99 shirt from HM. And they were like, oh my God, your style is so fresh. And I was just like, no, this is a must-have. Like yeah. and everything else I took from the closet. That is how this works. Like God bless I was, I couldn't afford to eat much. So I was sample size. Like, yeah. I just like, I made it work. And then I had an hour long commute to the end of Flatbush Avenue on the two train for a lovely little little apartment that I was paying $800 a month in rent. And it was still most of my paycheck. But I was doing something that I loved and I was doing something that I had such an incredible passion for. And looking back you know it's almost scary to think like i could have gone for the other one which by the way was that location was directly across the street from the world trade center the former world Trade oh, Center. oh my goodness and so i think i would have been in a very different position wow. in a year's time anyway right so just you just never know
0: out of commission for at least a week every single month, and that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our Seed Cycling Bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love Seed Cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening and now let's get back to the show. Yeah, no, that's true. Wow. It's powerful to think about that. You mentioned, you, you know, you're working at Dolce You are excited about the energy. You're hustling there. So tell me more about your first business. Did you do it on the side? I know it was called Hammocks and High Tea. So I kind of want to hear yeah. a little bit about what inspired you to do that and really some of the things you did right with the business and maybe the things that you did wrong with that business. Because I think there's a lot we can unpack there.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that business was called Hammocks and High Tea. And I actually, so I spent quite a a long time in fashion. Actually, I went from Dolce & Gabbana, then I moved into more contemporary brands and some overseas brands as well, and kind of like really ran the gamut, you know, in in terms of the experience and the type of people and brands that I worked with and sold. And when we experienced, for me, the first major lived experience with the first crash, fashion came down with it. Fashion was actually the canary in the coal mine for me because I was there at the trade shows when the world was sort of still just whispering that there might be something coming, and I was at the trade shows, and we had gone from selling a million dollars worth of t shirts in a day of sales to nothing. It was like tumbleweed blowing through the aisles. No one was there. Stores were closing. It was inc- insane. And it was incredibly, you know, it was a foreboding of, of what was to come. You know, I ended up losing my job. And I thought, again, if there's a time to be comfortable eating rice and beans, this is it. And I was a vegan at the time anyway. So I was like, this is great. I've got a really inexpensive lifestyle and I'm like, I've got clothes. I don't even have to think about it. Like I was out there looking very expensive on like a rice and bean <laughs> diet. Yeah. I, I thought here's a time to take a risk. And so I was really interested in home. I'm a, I'm a cancer. So I love home. I love, I'm like, my middle name needs to be cozy. Like I fully. love it. <laughs> You know, I was like, I, I just find home so boring. And I, I just really wanted to bring something unique and different to it. And so I started working on these like silkscreen goods. And I literally like started out printing them myself. And then over the next few years, we evolved. And I started working with a workshop that was one of the few remaining ones, actually, in the garment district. And they like did all of my cut and sew. And, you know, we moved to digital printing. And so I just kind of phased through and kept trying my hand at things and growing. But I knew how To do well and where I was successful was selling. So I'd spent all this time as an account executive with these fashion brands and I had built those relationships. So I knew how to access buyers. I knew how to put line sheets together. I knew how to price. I knew how to market. I knew how to tell the story. I knew how to tell the story of goods. And so I had this really beautiful, wonderful story going and I would bring that to buyers. And, you know, the line ended up in hundreds of stores across the country. You know, we experienced some international distribution. And we just had incredible press because the the products just like really, you know, told a wonderful story and and really stood out. I ended up also being on the cover of a really fantastic book for female entrepreneurs called In the Company of Women, which is like, it became a New York Times. I that. I never (laughs)
0: even put it together. Karen, I love it. How
1: cool. Yeah. So it's so funny. I still will have people be like, did I just see you in Barnes and Noble, and I 'm like, I think you might have, so yeah, that was really wonderful that that I call that the gift that keeps on giving that was written by grace Bonnie, who's a friend, and she's just absolutely fantastic and, and a, she was a blogger at the time, yeah, and so I, I knew how to carve out my voice, I knew how to tell a story, and I knew how to sell and so we had these wonderful, wonderful accolades, and I could say this again now because you know a certain way your brand can present in a certain way that looks so much bigger than you are. And I think that was pretty much what I was experiencing. And then when it came time to actually scale, didn't really have the foundation, you know, I wasn't paying myself very much. The goods were very expensive to produce and time consuming and so on to produce. I had launched by that time online. And so we were, we were both distributed through retailers and online as well, but it was kind of nuts because it's like, okay, the today show would, would hit and we'd be like on that. And then it was like, you sold out of everything in a day. And then you kind of like had to rush because they were hand produced. And it was just absolutely wild. Experience. So, my biggest lesson there, and I said the thing that I, I certainly could have learned earlier was financing that business and like really understanding how to think about it early on and phase out that financing rather than, okay, Sachs just gave you an order that you have no money to fill. Now I've got to go figure out where can I find someone to invoice against, someone that I can fund this PO basically. Yeah. And so you just kind of like ended up, I was constantly sort of in the moment trying to find the resources rather than planning ahead of time to have the resources against what I knew we were going to do over the course of the next year or so.
0: And I don't know if I read this correctly, but did you take an SBA loan out for this business mm-hmm. or? Okay, so
1: did, a with mm-hmm.
0: a small one, got it, got it. Yeah, because I was curious. I mean, a few things of just, you know, you getting laid off from this job and starting this business. Did you put like the savings that you had to kind of get it up in the SBA loan just to kind of get you started? Is that how you thought about
1: it? Or I didn't take the SBA loan until later, actually, and until we were growing. I am queen of figuring out how to rub like, together and like grow a business out of it. And so I started really small. And, you know, one of the things at the time that worked for my benefit is that we were doing textiles and home goods. And we were launching around the time that like Etsy was becoming a household name. And so there was A love of, an appreciation of, and an understanding of the process. Which I don't feel like we're in that period now. Totally. I think maybe we'll go back to it because I find that usually after our lives are sort of financially rocked, the economy sort of like cycles back with an appreciation for storytelling and like things that mean a lot and have a lot of thought and sort of um, emotion behind them. But yeah, that that was sort of the stage that I was in. So I was able to say, you can order it now, but this will take some odd weeks to make, whatever, two weeks to make. And I would take each of those orders in to my sewer and we'd get them done and people would absolutely love them. And then, yeah, we would just kind of keep going from there until I was able to have like a small stock.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's interesting. I do remember those heydays, like the early days of Etsy. My mom is very much a creative and she had was selling jewelry and a lot of other home goods as well. And she did really well early on, you know, just Mm -hmm. when it was coming out and people had appreciation for these things. So I understand the hustle behind the the scenes of at least you're getting paid up front. You're using that money for like future orders, and there's a delay in you getting back to them. So, you know, I am curious. Looking at it, you were doing it for a few years. You clearly were getting incredible press, like you were saying, you know, on the Today Show, selling out. there was interest there. So at what point did you realize it's time to close a business? Because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people ask me this question. They're like, how do I know that I shouldn't just push through? Because I think we always hear like, you got to just figure it out, pivot, pivot, figure out the right next step. So how did you think about really putting this chapter in your life to an end?
1: Yeah. You know, I wasn't I certainly wasn't paying myself, which is like, you know, that could have gone on for almost perpetuity, but like, there's only so much that you can really manage, right? And so I was up paying my my bills, keeping a roof over my head, but I really couldn't do much with my life other than that. And the reality is, is that it takes money to scale, right? And so there's a couple of ways that I could have done it. I could have gone back and made each and every single one of those goods, insanely expensive, right? Which yeah, I could have warranted that. And I certainly would have sat amongst other brands who were doing that and were very successful as a result. And so instead of selling a pillow for 105 or whatever, I could have sold it for 250 or 300. But I chose not to because I wanted it to be accessible. And especially for home, I just was like, I just didn't know who that customer was. Like, it just wasn't something that I felt in myself that I could relate to. And so looking back on the parts where I could have turned the dial a little bit towards more success financially, I didn't feel like I could go back and do that. And so we we came to a point where I actually started to see really good potential growth for the business. We had showrooms that were starting to distribute our fabric by the yard to interior designers. And then we had some international folks come on as well, and they wanted to do the same, but that's a long game. So now it's like, okay, all right, I've got the opportunity. That's great. I could end up decorating a hotel or homes, like forming relationships with designers, but that was a long game. Never know when it was going to hit. Right. And so, you know, I just really kind of sat down and looked at the opportunities, the financing and the risk factor. And I said, I I think it's time for me to make a different choice, you know, from here and, and kind of move on to, to something else. And after that, I literally, as I was thinking about it, I got the opportunity from Estee Lauder to, to go work there. And, and I will say, I, I want your listeners to know, because I, I know I've heard this myself and I don't think I was clear about it. I've heard people say things before and you're like, but wait, how did you pay the bills? I paid yeah. the bills because <laughs> I consistently had another job on the side. I was always working part-time.
0: Oh, when you had the business as well. Yes. Got yeah. it. Okay. I was
1: always working part time. And then, and so I worked for a psychologist. Yeah. I was consistently figuring out like how to work part time to keep the lights on in addition.
0: Yeah. And I think that's super important too, because there's a lot of stress, as you know, building a business and making ends meet, especially when you're starting out. So having that part time job or even doing it as a side hustle when you have a full time job, I think kind of lessens the anxiety a little bit. So I'm always yeah. pushing people to kind of maintain what they're doing. And then, you know, whether it's doing it full-time or part-time and doing what they want to kind of bring into the world on the side because there's so much unknown and anxiety that comes around just building something from scratch and just kind of seeing your journey, you know, and kind of putting that end to any business. It's like your child, right? It's such a hard decision to do. I talk to people all the time who are considering doing that. Did that decision feel right at the time or did you have any fears that you were a quitter and what people might think about you? Like, how did you deal with the mental load that kind of accompanied really ending that chapter in your life?
1: Yeah, well, as you can imagine, I've always been a fan of therapy, right? And I've always been a believer in in psychologists. And I actually, a good part of me, like going back to therapy was driven by that because, when you look at like our upbringing and like that emphasis on education and all of that, like here I was like, okay, it's, it's a wonderful story. Right. But at the same time, I was going against my family, like sort of standard. I was the only entrepreneur in my family at the time, all of my other, my cousins and everyone else either maintained incredibly stable jobs or they were freaking brilliant. I mean, like, multiple Ivy League degrees, chemists, doctors, educators, like you name it. And here I was like, I want to wear pretty clothes. Um, And like, you know, I want to start my own business. And yeah, the risk from a cultural, familial and salary perspective was just huge what I was taking on. And people could respect it from the outside, but I didn't have any support. There was no place to fall back other than like, I could go sleep on your couch if it all blows up, right? So yeah, it was deciding to close it felt like a failure and certainly felt like I had taken all of this risk, all of this time, like really lived hand to mouth for years and getting to this point where I needed to close it felt like I had supremely failed at something.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I know therapy has been such a big help in, you know, your life. And that's something you've always been a proponent of. What were some of the things that came from that experience? I know one thing that I thought was interesting when I was listening to another interview is you're really thinking about, like, what were you trying to prove? Right. I think we all have that. I think about that a lot. And I'm like, who am I trying to prove it to? Like, how? So I'd love to just kind of hear maybe some of the findings or highlights through that moment in your life and what you learned through therapy.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think that there was certainly one element of my childhood that was wonderful and and magical. And then there was another part that was really hard, like Mm -hmm. raised by a single mom in Brooklyn on welfare, while she sort of tried to figure it all out, there was just like a lot that was sort of going on in the the background, and I think that I find that entrepreneurs generally have a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> There's some. It just it might be a small chip, it could be a <laughs> large chip, but there is a chip on our shoulders somewhere, and I think for me, I I needed to prove my worth and my value in, Mm. in a lot of that. And I was young, I was in my twenties when I started that business. And so I didn't quite put the two and two together at the time. And so going into therapy, when I decided to close the business was I had the ability to dissect and pull the two things apart and say, you were not what you were trying to build right? Which essentially also meant you are not what you were trying to prove, right? Separate those things and start to find this value in yourself where you are. And it doesn't have to be tied to the business and don't ever tie to business actually. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're raised in certain circumstances and there are certain expectations and so on, We all just want to make someone proud, right? You know, we often want to. We want to prove our value. We want to prove our worth. And I think, as the children of immigrants, we often hear about how big the sacrifice was, how much it took to get here. We used to laugh when um, we were young. I'm, I'm sure you've heard these kind of jokes where. We would sort of riff on like, oh, I walked 5,000 miles with no shoes to get to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like so similar to that. It was like, you have to finish eating because you have to finish the food on your plate because this is how hard I worked to get this to you. And this is how much it costs and all. of So everything was so rooted in the sacrifice, which we know and we appreciate, but it is a weight that we carry as well because I think we are forever trying to figure out how to pay our parents back for that sacrifice. And I think I just carried that all the way through. And then when I didn't see the success that I was looking for in that business, I took it so very personally. And there was no one around me in terms of my family or anyone that I could turn to who had experience to say, girl, Nine out of 10 businesses fail. Yes. That's just it. Exactly. Those are are some mean stats and it is hard. It is absolutely hard. And by the way, you do not just walk up to Chase or TD Bank and and say, hey, I've got this brilliant idea. Can you cut me a check? (laughs) Yeah. Funding doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah. And no, it is interesting because I think just growing up in like an immigrant family, you also have this pressure of, I did all of this. So like you got to make it in some capacity, whatever that means for your family, whether it's Mm -hmm. a certain job or getting an education, or if you're going to start a business, like we're banking on you, you know, it might not be said that way, but there's like this subconscious pressure of you want to do something amazing, kind of just going back to your reason of, to whether, prove that you can or to give back to your family or in some sense. So I think that's super interesting to pay back. back. Exactly. And what you, what you mentioned, which I think I try to remind myself often as I'm now on my own journey of entrepreneurship, like it is so easy to get tied to Your business, like your identity, your living and breathing. I mean, looking at your journey, you are literally living and breathing every single day for years about your business. It's so hard to kind of untangle yourself from that, but really knowing your worth and the lessons that you've learned and what you've kind of gone through that journey, I think is so important. We'll talk about your next venture and how it benefits all that, but really making sure you have not the attachment to your business of your worth, right? I mean, it sounds very easy, but Practicing that day to day is really critical because you'll have some highs, as you know, and some lows, and you don't want to be tied to that, right? Because
1: then it'll yeah. be a, a major emotional roller coaster when you already exactly. are dealing with a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. and then you take everyone else through that emotional. You yeah. take your family, you take your friends, you take your team, and it's just wild.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I want to go to, you know, you're, you got this serendipitous email of working at Estee Lauder as you were looking to unwind the first business. So you were working there for a bit. Tell me more. Were you thinking always about, you know, what will my next thing be? Or did you know you wanted to kind of jump into the world of entrepreneurship? Because I kind of want to hear how the idea of We Shave kind of came about early on.
1: I went to Estee Lauder and it was actually a personal relationship. I was the woman that hired me. I was working part-time for her husband. And so she knew Love me it. well and knew my personality and knew what I was doing on the side. And she was just like, this company needs this type of energy. Would you be willing to? And before she could get it out, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I like, got a hot second. Yeah. Are you going to pay <laughs> me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, wait, did you say salary? Yeah, Got it. <laughs> Benefits, I'm there. Yeah. I got the opportunity to move over there. And what I liked was that she knew that I was an entrepreneur at heart and would sort of bring that. Over, and that is a breath of fresh air that I think we saw and we still see many incumbents struggling with, right? That's why the MA field has been like so red hot over the last like decade plus, is because there's a a breath and the understanding of how to connect to a consumer, make the things that people want, market them in different ways that everyone has sort of been searching for. And so I went over with that and just tried to bring I the perspective of freshness and turning things over, like why, why are we doing the things this way, and how can I sort of help? But like, also staying in my lane a little bit too, because you don't go into a company of that size and that magnitude with that level of longevity, and it's like, oh no, yeah, cool. like yeah, I'm in here. Let's like turn it all over, right? Like that's not how they they think, and so you have to be very careful how to tread. But that was yeah that was an amazing experience and i think i just consistently when you're an entrepreneur i think people may sort of i say like put a lot of filter and gloss and all of that onto the the word i think really truly you're just a person who walks around and you see opportunities you where people might see problems you see an opportunity and and i saw an opportunity for At the time, a new way to think about position and approach shaving when it came to women and an inclusive audience that I wasn't seeing anyplace else.
0: And I know you started that business. So I believe it was still a side hustle, right? When you first launched it, you still had your full-time job and you really only put $1,500 of your money. So tell me more about those very, very early days of you full-time at SD Lauder and getting that initial V1 of the product and the brand out with that money.
1: So, yeah, it was truly like another side hustle. It was towards the end of my time there, but I had sort of incubated the idea for a while. And what I did is I just researched. I just, you know, went out and I found the communities who would help me bring this to their communities and to their audiences. So I started talking to bloggers and influencers and just really started building these very personal relationships. I started talking to Potential and consumers to make sure that, like, if I was going to build something, they actually wanted it, and it wasn't something that I was just kind of dreaming of, right? And then thinking about like what they bought, what they needed, what their lives were like, how they thought about their skin and their bodies, and how we could actually truly serve them. I put up a site, and the first person who bought was my brother, Kenton. Yeah. Love that! <laughs> I just absolutely adore him. The first order that came through, I was like, he's amazing, and then. We just started being picked up by these incredible bloggers. I didn't even, I bought it. Like, I didn't even gift, like, they had met me, talked about why I wanted to be in the space, what I saw, what I loved, what I was making, what we wanted to do. And they bought it, and then they talked about it. And it just kept spiraling from there. And by the time I turned around, I was literally hauling ikea full size like bags i love those bags train. by the way
0: yeah amazing, i used to use those bags they're big enough you. they're sturdy yeah <laughs> they can fit
1: a lot. like 50 razors per bag is what i found yeah <laughs> i was like sweating hauling them onto the train at like 7 a.m running to the post office the second it opened dropping all of these packages off and then like sprinting in to work and then I got to the point where I, I sat down we were d2c and so I sat down and I was like oh, this is actually like different this isn't like a retail order here and there you never know when they're gonna sell out or anything I can actually look back at my last six months and I can see the trend mm-hmm. and I know we're coming up on holiday and so I can look back and I can look forward and and I can I know what's gonna hit and we were getting some such incredible press and people love the product and love the brand and love the story and I was like this isn't fly by night anymore this can actually be planned and mapped out and I also know what initiatives I can put in place to scale and kind of keep going and that's when I decided okay I think I I can because I saw my next 6 months I knew what was coming and I knew what I could do and then I ended up like literally super last minute, we were, was doing their very first um, creator awards and they literally emailed and said, we think you should apply for the yeah. creator awards. And I was just like, I don't even know, like, what are you talking? Okay. Okay. And then I was like, oh, there's a lot of money in this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. to my husband, and I was just like, no, this is friends and family size funding. Wow, And he was like, go apply. So I spent two days mapping out like, this is what I think we can do. This is what I've built. This is what we've seen. This is my passion. This is who I am. Let's do this. And went and like did the whole thing, sent in the video application, got called pretty quickly. I think like within 48 hours, I was in like an in-person interview. The next week I was on a stage presenting in front of, of a much larger audience than I expected. And I walked away with 180,000, which I think was like the second biggest prize of the night. And so it was just wonderful and, and destined in a different way.
0: Yeah, so I want there's a lot that I want to unpack here. So just going back to the early days. So you were saying what I appreciate like I believe the first 2 years of your business you were really developing those relationships with like you were saying the customers, bloggers, influencers. So tell me more about what that looked like because I think at that time I mean you didn't have your product with you, right? You were just most mostly developing relationships. So tell me more about what that looked like, because so much of when you did launch benefited you, right? Because you said you got a lot of press, you got a lot of engagement. Obviously, you have an amazing product that they really uh, resonated with from meeting you beforehand. But let's talk about those early days of building that those kinds of relationships, because I do think it's key.
1: Yeah. So I had a razor. And first of all, like, razor was the smartest thing and the stupidest thing that I had ever done. There was no, it wasn't like I was making skincare or something I like that, where there were like a ton of contract manufacturers yeah. that I could go to. It was like two people in the entire world. And I was just like, got it. Hmm. <laughs> like, how do we figure this out? And so I actually started out just testing the idea and I had, bought a razor from Germany. I determined that Germany was one place that I really wanted to to work with. And so I bought a razor from Germany and I had two different sizes and I just yeah. kind of expo- I used it as an opportunity for education. And I think that's actually kind of key and, and was key to that super, super early success because I didn't go out telling people that they needed to buy this product. It wasn't like, you know, the lights are on on the business and like, let's come in, sale, sale, sales. sales, sales. Yep. It was more like, how can I help you? And how can I help you learn? How can I help you learn about your skin? How can I help you use it best? How can I serve you? I think from that perspective, people just felt like, oh, I, I want to tell her more. Like I actually want to figure out. Yeah, we ended up getting, and so that like having that early product and just educating people around it was like fundamental. Sure. And so- they sort of really picked up on that from there. And then I was able to take all of those learnings. So we learned, you know, which of the two razors, like the shorter, heavier one or the lengthier, like lighter weight one, which one was easier for people to use, which one did they prefer, which one sat in the hand a little bit better, what knurling pattern was like easier and, and better to maneuver with, especially when you're in the shower. You know, we were doing like a little shave oil at the time the viscosity of the shave oil, like what actually worked better? How did people think about it? What were the results like? So I just really dug in. I used my psychology background and just got to know people and got really, really curious and pulled it all together. And literally, I think like one or two days before I went on stage and won the award, I had samples in hand. And that was the first time that I had seen my real product after developing it with the manufacturer. And it was the very first one that we saw. When I handed it to the judges, they were like, This is stunning, you know? Mm -hmm. But I was like, sitting there, like sweating, (laughs) because I was like, this thing just got here 24 hours ago. (laughs) Like, we almost didn't make it. I was about to go out there and try to win with just a vision, which I think we still could have. But, you know, having the sample really kind of took it to the next level.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, like you were saying, creating a razor is not like you're creating a skincare product or a food product that you can kind of mess around with in your kitchen or you know there's not so many contract manufacturers so how did you really break into that I mean was it pure googling dialing for dollars to find someone who can create the product but how did you really develop that relationship because you also weren't doing a lot of order quantities at the time as well
1: yeah. So that was really finding the right people on the other end. And that was already in and of itself like a whole thing because we had to find the the right manufacturer and then find the right manufacturer that believed in us. And I always say I I went through the the ringer of like calling around different people and you know people had been doing this for decades and it was just like wait you're you're just a chick from brooklyn like what and you want to make it for women like mm, i don't understand you know what we have one in stock we can just paint it pink and like we can you know it's fine from there and i was just like no that's actually not what i was thinking i have a very specific pattern that i want i have a very specific weight i have a very specific handle that i really want to to achieve how do we do this and The conversations never went further from there. And then one day, a woman picked up on the other end. And that's our current manufacturer. And I said, never get anywhere if it weren't for women picking up on the other end. I I promise you that.
0: 100%. Women are amazing. And just really connecting with people who understand what you're trying to create. But I just love hearing your journey with that because I think a lot of people will try to find the right contract manufacturer, but it does take a lot of time and grit and patience to find the right one. So I just love hearing that those examples because if you're listening to this now and you're trying to get in front of the right person, but you're not finding the right person, it's part of the process. It just, it's a matter of time. And I think that's a huge part of just to your success of really finding somebody who was able to kind of create what exactly what you were looking for and take a chance on you. So I I just love to hear that. So I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit. You know, so much of how you thought about building the business was... Just reinvesting the dollars back into your business. You didn't think about fundraising early on, or maybe that wasn't a path that you were necessarily thinking through, but you most recently closed around, I believe around three million this year. Big congratulations. So Thank tell you. me more about how you thought about fundraising in terms of early in your business and you know, most recently with this successful
1: round. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest changes for me were more like Early in my business, I I kind of always thought I had to prove every single solitary element first, build it with nothing. I needed to be a unicorn. I needed to be a miracle maker. And then I could go out and get people to back that. And I think the biggest difference with the last raise, and not to say that it was easier by any stretch of the imagination, fundraising is always hellish, but I had... Core foundation, first and foremost, of a healthy business. And I had the opportunity that we could speak to from there. I was then able to fill in what I wanted the team to look like, what the product roadmap was going to look like, and the experiments that we were going to run in order to scale and build from there, and what our distribution plan was going to look like. And by then, all of this stuff was like, set in stone or in And we would kind of maneuver. And so I think one of the things is women always feel before they go out and raise that they've got to have it all solved. And I'm not going to say that I was able to surpass that. It's something that I still struggle with because, you know, we are usually overlooked, undervalued, like the whole, the whole shebang, like we've, we've got that. And, and so I think we often just feel like, no, I got to prove myself. Nothing else is going to work but yeah this time around it was less about proof and more about painting the picture of what we had already established and where we could really go from there with the right capital to the business and also the relationships part of it in addition you know what would it look like to have investors who truly backed us who could take help take us to the next level who had the emotional stake in the business as well to work alongside me at this early stage where, frankly, it looks terrifying. Yeah. It is as terrifying as when I had just a dollar in the bank, right? Or it, more because now I've got team, right? Yeah. And now I've got people to support and, and all of that. And now I've promised something. I have a fiduciary duty on, on top of it. So it gets even more terrifying. Yeah. And then it starts to like, all of your demons come up, for me, that was the nope. I'm constantly doing it myself, doing itself. It's just me. It's just me. I got this covered, you know. And and it, this was how I was. This is how I was was raised. And so there's so much that like you end up having to examine as a result in order to be able to leave room for your business to scale and and for you to see that next level of success. And so as you can imagine, I've I'm a big proponent of like keeping that therapy going. Like, I I talk to my therapist like once a week because we need to make sure that we are not bringing all of the demons to the business as it is now and to the team as it is now. And that I need to focus on finding the people and like really truly investing in them and giving them the space to run to build the vision that we're all a part of now.
0: Yeah. And you know, there's so many things that resonate with what you were saying in terms of like those demons. And especially when you're like putting a deck together and bringing on investors, that's like a whole level of responsibility on top of just team. I think having a team is already like step one in terms of entrepreneurship. All right, you're feeding people. This is like people's livelihood. And then you have investors coming in. But how do you deal with that pressure? I know you mentioned therapy. Are there any other rituals that you have? Because like you said, you know, you have an 18 month old at home, you're growing this high growth business, you are hiring, you know, Know, you're you're ready to take this business to the next step. How do you deal deal with that feeling of overwhelm? That, you know, I have a much smaller business and I that's something I try to tackle every day. So any words of wisdom that you have learned from your experience because it doesn't get like you said it only gets harder as you grow and as you want to yeah. take the next thing to the moon. So I'm curious
1: to get your thoughts. Yeah, you know what I think if I'm to be honest, I, you know, I could, I could say that I do yoga and do all of these things. Yeah. I'm trying to get back. I'm sitting here in front of you drinking a green juice and I'm like, well, I just will do whatever I can in the moment. It doesn't always look like I'm taking deep breaths and I'm meditating and I get up at 4am in the morning. No, I yeah. sleep until I, the very last second that I can, I am probably doing way too much and I'm definitely not doing yoga as often yeah, as I should. Same. What I have learned is if I don't surround myself with people who, are, who understand what I'm going through, other founders who are in the same stage or just beyond or whatever, if I don't have that network of people who I can keep it really real with, I suffer because we are all prone to falling for the stories that we see online. We are all prone to the tweets of success, and I grew my business overnight, two hundred percent. And we see someone post that they just closed a fundraise, and we don't know that that fundraise actually took years or many, many months. Or we see someone who's like, "Oh yeah, I did like you know it. I did it in two weeks or whatever." And it's just like you just don't know how to order the stories in the right place and know what to say. You know, that's, that's that's BS. Don't have any time for that. This is actually what the reality is. And everybody has a hard time or this whole thing is really, really freaking difficult. It is not for everyone and it is not for sane people. (laughs) (laughs) I need people like that around me that I can text really quickly and just say, have you experienced this? Or like, how are you feeling? Can we have like a quick 15 minutes or, you know, just that's the only way that I get through this. You got to have the truth around you.
0: Yeah, I love that. People who understand have been through it and are there to support you. But I love that, Karen. Well, thank you so much for just being with us today and being so real about your journey. We're cheering you on and can't wait to see how we just continues to grow and scale. So
1: thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I love being here.